I sort of felt I was inside a cage. And I used to go around preaching peace and things like that. And people would just, be, they looked very incredulous at my responses because they thought I was so stupid. Because I just refused to accept that I lived in some kind of a cage like them and just wouldn't accept those bars as limitations. So I, I wanted to feel like a free-thinking soul. I couldn't do that as a banker. And um, I think all my rebellion since then has been just to prove that I'm not in the cage. I do not belong to the cage. It had less to do with, with aspiring to do good. I believe everybody has a story. And Dhani has been all about these stories coming from opinions, personal experiences, life lessons, and so much more. And somewhere along the lines, we find ourselves being part of these stories or they being part of us in nooks and crannies, in crumbs, in echoes and reflections. This week, I'm in conversation with Mr. Shad Marif. And before we begin, I must tell you that this podcast is like a glass of cold lemonade, refreshing, energizing and heartwarming. Mr. Marif established Pakistan's first center for remedial education and assessment of dyslexics, most commonly known as READ. And since then, he's been helping parents and children to overcome their behavioral and learning difficulties. Mr. Marif has also conducted training workshops and seminars on education and keynoted in several international conferences on education in Canada, USA, UK, Singapore, Kenya, Bangladesh and Pakistan. In this podcast, we talk about his most recent program called The Charismath. Although, as the word reveals, it is to do with math, but Mr. Moarif explains to us the importance of reasoning, logic, dots and digits in our everyday life. We talk about the modulation of the entire program. We talk about the importance of empathy for teachers. We talk about the importance of reaching the rural areas and why Mr. Moarif feels so passionately about his program. Mr. Marif, thank you so much for being on Dhani. Truly, truly appreciate you being here with all your um, all that you have to share with us and your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. Sir, um, I, I came across your uh, profile and your work, which is uh, by the name, the current uh, project, uh, which is... Uh, um, in the rural areas of Pakistan called Charismath. Am I pronouncing it right? Yes, Charismath is the name of my program. It's the name and of the program. But if you were to go back all the way, say about 35 years ago, you are the mastermind uh, behind one of the, uh, the, very, the, the first center in Pakistan for remedial education and assessment. Uh, of dyslexics, which is very commonly known as READ. Um, so, starting from that till now, take us, give us a peek into um, what made you start READ, what is, and basically coming to the hows and whys of Charismath, which is your current program. I started with READ, it was, it's, I started, I got into education quite by accident. 
by chance. It wasn't my, I used to be a banker, but I abandoned that for a number of reasons and decided to go away somewhere far away on a soul searching mission about two years to Europe and I returned. I had nothing to do. I was sitting around, sort of sitting basically um, doing some scribbling for the newspapers on films and things like that. There was a knock on the door and somebody asked, since you write so well, can you teach my kid English? That's how it started. I never sort of had any intentions of going into education. He turned out to be mentally challenged. So I had this problem of dealing with a kid who I've, no, I've never taught in my life. And there was this kid who had to teach both English and math. So that was what started it. And it became a challenge because as I went deeper into this world of teaching and as I had switched off from banking, I realized over a period that a lot of my switching had to do with you know, some of the things that I wanted to do as a student, some of the things I longed to do, you know, inspired by whatever books and things like that, as we all do at that age, were not quite in line with what I'd taken up as a profession, which is mm -hmm. banking. Mm -hmm. So I sort of felt I was inside a cage and I used to go around preaching peace and things like that and people would just they looked very incredulous at my responses because they thought I was so stupid because I just refused to accept that I lived in some kind of a cage like them and just wouldn't accept those bars as limitations. So I, I wanted to feel like a free-thinking soul. I couldn't do that as a banker. And um, I think all my rebellion since then has been just to prove that I'm not in the cage I do not belong to the cage. It had less to do with, with aspiring to do good or to help mm. people with to learning serve. difficulties. Yeah, mm. but it had to, more to do with when I found people were stuck in a cage and wouldn't want to come out of it, it roused something in me. So I, I, I found parents stuck in cages. I found the children stuck in cages, socialized beings in general. And all this when I got accidentally drawn into teaching a mentally challenged kid who was grappling with a lot of very cognitive issues, also trapped in a cognitive cage. So it was mm. this thing about liberating myself and liberating somebody else with them. I didn't succeed with this, uh, with this kid so much, but I did create enough space inside his cage to... For him to, to breathe. Accommodate, yeah, to mm. accommodate future growth, yes. Mm -hmm. So that's what drew me into this world of education. And then later on, with one thing after the other, learning difficulties and finding out by accident again, stumbling into a, a kid who couldn't read at the age of 13. So I had to figure out more primitive ways to teach him to read through sound. And it turned out that I was doing all the right things. So when I got training subsequently kind of validated my practices. So that made me very interested in this area. I just went deeper into that. And initially it was all to do with language learning, but mm -hmm. side by side I was teaching mathematics. And because I enjoyed teaching mathematics, teaching reading and language learning, uh, overcoming language learning difficulties, what I learned from my 
learning disabilities was working with parents. The reason why it succeeded was parents finally had found a reason. Mm, they, they understood why their children were not doing so well, of why course. this kid screamed, or why this kid was acting like a clown in the class, or why he wouldn't listen, or why he would misbehave. Finally, they had, they could find a reason, and I gave them that reason. And I think that gratitude they felt towards that, the relief, was huge. And course, I, as yeah. a result, felt it. It, 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 so it affected me. So I started really getting addicted to this feeling of bringing something of value to a population of parents and making them, making their life easier. Mm. And that mm -hmm. idea that if they know there's a reason or something, that constantly drew me into mathematics because that's where I discovered how reason works in terms of collecting knowledge, making connections inside of knowledge. There's no other subject better than mathematics in which I could actually see that in greater depth and also kind of a revelation of its beauty, inner beauty. So that's why I took to math side by side. Eventually, I had to make a decision. I dropped English and language learning and clung to math because that was, I knew that that's something that would endure for the mm. rest of my life. Mm. But, and I made the right decision. So since then, you've been helping uh, children understand the digits and the dots, <laughs> the decimals. And then came around CLSO math. Yeah, the CLSO math was, it stood for concept, language, symbols, and operations. And that was the order in which mathematics is actually learned by the mind. You learn the concept and then once you've got the concept of whatever, a circle or an area, then you learn the language, you express it as words, circles, areas, and then you go to symbols, turn it symbolic, and those symbols help you to operate like mm. a mathematical operation, so CLSO. Mm. And I remember Zahir Kidwai, who was in Karachi, mm. was the first one who introduced me to to, to the computers. And he was very intrigued by what I was doing. So when I did workshops and things in Karachi, he gave it an acronym which went Children Love Sweet Oranges for kids. Yeah. So that was cute. Cute. <laughs> but, and he was always there with me during my workshops and things. Interesting. So that was a long time back. That was going mm. back to the 1980s. So Cluso was the starting point for what I understood as how mathematics should be understood and learned and taught. And then from there it morphed into what is today charismath. The name changed. Mm -hmm. But name changed and also the, the audience changed as well. Yes, the audience and it's geographically and culturally, yes. But in terms of the minds that are learning math, they're not all that different. So in, in a sense, I just moved geographically and culturally from one area to another, mm. but I remained connected with the minds behind them. Sure. And that's what became so, uh, I, I just found that really a wonderful experience. I felt I could swim in something that felt quite universal. And since then, I've been, I've, I've always been inspired by the idea there's something more to things than 
what meets the eye. Mm. So that, that was fun to do. So Chris Math actually came, the mathematics, the whole idea of teaching math, mathematics also changed. Why we learn mathematics, that also changed in my mind. It was not to become engineers and doctors and things like that, but more to do with learning how to think using reasoning as a tool and learning how to dissect uh, through a process of reasoning um, the meaning of things. So going into meaning making, and I found there's nothing as good as math to mm. develop the mind and turn it into a tool that can dissect and look for meaning and connections. And when it's found, it just it just explodes. It, it just it's ecstatic that piece, that bit. In fact, it was something that really excited me. So you wanted to introduce the world of uh, fractions and multiplication and division to um, the rural areas of Pakistan where 80% of the population resides. Yeah, I had this, uh, I used to, when I used to write uh, in front of the computer and make these visuals, I had, and I can't still today explain why I got those visuals, but it was always the visuals of uh, a rural population, not in Pakistan, but oddly in Africa. Mm -hmm. And they were living in huts and they used bows and arrows. And I imagined teaching them mathematics. I imagined teaching them multiplication. And I would sit oh. in front of the computer and ask, now how, where would I begin? if I had to learn. So I knew I had to start with shapes and make the shapes move so that they can actually catch the movement and understand that it's going from A to B to C. And in the process, unravel some meaning which has to do with mathematical concepts. So that was really what inspired me to meet this challenge that I'd created for myself. So it was very easy for me then to want to try it out on the rural populations in Pakistan. And that's what I have been doing for the last eight years. You, uh, you, you almost make math sound like a piece of art. Um, and I personally am in love with the subject, but I think my daughter needs to hear this more than anyone <laughs> else because she is just scared of it. Just she, she's scared of numbers. So anyway. So what's the whole concept? How are you now infiltrating into the market? And how are you measuring its uh, reach, its uh, penetration, its uh, success? So I'm not looking at it as a market. And therefore, since it's not a corporate-oriented sort of structure or approach, I'm not thinking about, about it in terms of, um, well, how far can I reach and how quick? But you're absolutely sure. right. I am thinking otherwise in terms of, because I, I feel that there are ways in which you can reach populations if you use the right kind of uh, materials, courseware, and you can uh, get to a very large number of users or learners in very short time mm -hmm. at very little cost, minimal cost, if anything at all. And mm -hmm. at the same time, bring to them a very large amount of earning, uh, learning in terms of depth and width in, in, of the scope. So all that can be done and it is doable. 
So what I'm trying to do is now create a miniature version of that through a pilot, through, uh, through an organization called Akhwat, that is in okay. Pakistan. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that pilot is underway right now to test. So, so far, it has been uh, going quite surprisingly well, but there's still a lot of things to cover before I can say yes. But it seems like everyone who's in it are feeling very inspired because for the first time, rural teachers have gone through an entire process of learning mathematics in a very new way, ways that they never mm. had imagined through visuals, through um, animations. And for the first time, they actually say, we got it, we finally understand. And they're very keen now to share it with the kids. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of hurdles that are that have to be overcome. So that's mm. what we're doing right now, is trying to work through hurdles. Because yes, there are hurdles. There's, you have a group of people who are teacher trainers. Mm -hmm. They already have them. Okay. I take the teacher trainers and give them the training in three areas, in three streams. First is knowledge installation, which means I have to install the knowledge of mathematics into the minds. Most of these teacher trainers have no idea of what mathematics means or what it entails, but they're going around training teachers. So first I have to do that, so I did that. After that, and they have to sit through tests, and it's very rigorous, and they have to get really high scores and tests. Then the next thing is to introduce what I call communicating what they've understood. So that's another phase. And that communication has, been, has to be done through drawings and through making pictures and through visualizing math concepts with the chalk on the board. Can a teacher then, instead of numbers, if she has to show eight divided by two, can she show that visually without numbers? So that's what they learn to do. So the master trainers are being trained to learn how to do all this. And there are videos on how to draw, grade level by grade level, how to draw generally, how to draw removing so much from so much, how to draw things like increase, decrease, how to show it visually. So they have to go through the whole process of learning how to visualize the communication skills through um, mm. doodles and, 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 and sort of drawings on the board so that it's always communicated. And then how to check student learning through those drawings. So that's the second phase. After they've completed the second phase, the master trainers then do the same thing with the teachers. <clears throat> oh, so the okay. teachers are now inducted and in doing the same things. The master trainers don't have to be experts in this, but the teachers have to become really experts in this. So once the teachers have yeah. learned how to draw and how to visualize, then the next step is actual teaching. So that that's the longest, well, visualization is the longest phase. And after that, they learn how to teach. So there are videos that model teaching. All those videos are basically me teaching rural kids. But it's with a voiceover that explains the finer aspects of teaching, how to make teaching interactive with the kids. And they're all in Urdu. So how the kids respond, what kind of questions you ask, how do you make it a very engaging, exciting experience. So they can see the kids. I mean, these sessions were, were filmed through three cameras. So you catch the kids' expressions, you catch 
me teaching and you catch the board in which I do all the drawings and of course also the, the, the videos. So it's like integrating the use of the video, the use of the board, the use of drawing on the board and testing student learning and the use of formative assessment, which means teachers, as they're teaching, every segment that they teach after a few minutes, they pause and ask questions. One of the biggest challenges right now is how to teach or show teachers or trainers how to ask questions because it's just not in the culture. So that's exactly. what they do. After they've understood all that and watched training videos or teaching videos, how to model it, then they're ready to actually go into the classroom and start teaching. But they can, it's, it's a cascade. They can already start teaching kids in the classroom while they're learning how to draw. So it's a bit of a mix right now because the situation is very fluid over there because of the coronavirus and things like that. Schools are partly open, partly closed. So we are. I'm just trying to take advantage of whatever gaps are created in between classes when teachers can't teach. So I'm plugging all those gaps by plugging it with as much learning as they can get to learn how to teach mathematics in a different way. I have programs for English literacy, just a short program called Caris English, but ah, that's going, okay. that has to wait a little while. But I have nothing to do with read anymore, so unfortunately sure. the, the, the association is not there, so I don't have access to... I mean, read is always there, but I think I want to first find out, crack the code of how to get into the ethnic culture of of, of, of villages, how do you crack into that and what is needed to to pry it open so that we can get behind the language, behind the culture, into the minds. And that's really where, until I find an answer to that, uh, I'll put everything else on hold. But I think we're getting there. I think the trainers are getting there and I think the teachers are feeling more and more confident. They're all from the same area. So, uh, they're feeling understood, they feel they understand, and they feel very confident. They're actually raring to go, wanting to teach, but I know that they can't teach unless they have certain skills in place. I don't want them to throw mm. throw themselves over there and then experience a lot of problems. I, I know what those problems are, but they don't, which is one of mm. the problems in going and entering into the rural areas is because People want to rush and do things because they think understanding something is enough. And understanding is only the beginning. It is never enough. Of course, yeah, yeah. So just coming towards the, uh, although it's a huge ask, my next question, but just sort of um, um, coming to my last question. I recently came across some literature which, uh, was, which was sort of a study drawing empathy quotient with systemizing quotient. You'll have to explain that to me. So, for, for instance, they were, they were going through whether, you know, how, how does uh, the understanding of um, math, as you're saying, is a lot of reasoning, there's a lot of logic, there's a lot of visuals that are there. And they were trying to see how it sort of fills in with uh, empathy. And because empathy is my like my most favorite subject topic 
I don't know what internal genetic code. So I just wanted you, if if you, uh, because you 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 spoke about the cognitive development and you spoke about the cognitive science and empathy has to do a lot with all of those. Do you see a relationship there? Although I have to say that math teachers have to be very empathetic, <laughs> but that's besides the point. I think empathy has been described as the engine of communication in the world of education. Empathy or empathic communication, which is almost like a, a therapeutic tool, that has been integrated into all forms of education because mm. you can't, when you create a rapport, the whole, the, the, the wheels on which, on which your connection, your exchanges with the students work is called rapport. Yeah. It's impossible to have rapport without empathic communication. So sure. they're all interlinked. You can't do without it. Mm. A lot depends on where you apply your empathic or where you experience your empathy. In mathematics, it was, so it, it, you can't work without, without experiencing empathy. So if a child, for example, of a student is struggling to answer the, some question in fractions, and all the kids in the class are looking at him. That's probably one of the most horrifying experiences that a kid goes through. And if it's not handled well, the kid will never again ask any question. Or the kid will never raise his hands to answer a question. You've lost mm. it. So mm. it's very, very important to constantly be connected empathically, emotionally, with the plight of the students, his ups and downs, so you can move with the, with the kid. And eventually it's a collective feeling that you get from the entire class. You can yeah. actually tell if you, if you work long enough with a class. I haven't worked in a classroom, but teachers, I, I know I, when I do, when I've done conferences with large audiences, you feel that connective uh, you know, link with a large audience. It's like a lot of silent voices, silent listening that gathered together like tiny streams to become a river and you feel its movement. It's something like that with empathy in classrooms. So you're absolutely right. But then the empathy you'd feel would have to do with how students respond to the success or failure, mainly failure, how they deal with disappointments. And if it's not done right, it you can go wrong. But then you can't just work as empathy. Empathy is a, like a, it's like the fuel, if you like. But there's an engine and there's a whole lot of other parts involved when you develop an empathic communication with your student. And a lot has to do with the knowledge of the subject. Mm. Now, if you, are, if, you are, if you want to deal with a student who's been really embarrassed because this kid couldn't understand something, or he's feeling a lot of pain because he feels left behind while others are going forward, you need to know where exactly the problem lies in terms of his actual learning. A kid feels very understood when we actually identify, oh, because you can have five mistakes, the same mistake, like 25 times 36. You can make it go wrong. Five kids can make the same mistake for five different reasons. And if you pick the wrong reason for identifying why he made a mistake, the kid will know that you don't know why he's suffering. Mm. But the moment you pick up the correct 
reason that he or she has experienced that that's the where the problem lies, then the kid feels understood and they find that you can bring them the relief because you can tell them how to do it right. Yeah. And that's really the crux of the matter. To express your empathy, you have to follow through by doing something about it. And that is the journey. And that's not easy to do if you don't know your subject very well. So with kids making spelling mistakes and you think it's because of, well, this guy just forgot. No, maybe not. Maybe this guy's connection making between sound and certain vowels do not quite get together, is not working together. Mm -hmm. And so you need to work on those specifics. So I think your question is a very valid one and a very good one. I haven't heard many people talk about it or even <laughs> ask it because that is really so important. So if you were to ask me, I would, uh, <laughs> I would join empathy even with railroad tracks. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, sure. so essentially, I would, I would imagine that as you're saying, so yes, one part of your charisma is about importing a very, very important uh, subject of math, which is not even a subject, I would say. It is uh, it is a tool. It is a lifelong tool. But also, as you're saying, you have, you're equipping the teachers to know their subject so well so they can understand each and every child and their perspectives. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I mean, it's, they, they, yeah. yeah, so it's like it's sort of not, not just a two-dimensional situation. It's like a 360-degree thing that's happening. Yeah, because they're in the front line. I mean, you can't, teachers are the mothers of all professions. Of course. So in a there sense. You go. Yeah. So, so if, you, if the teachers are probably the most valued human beings that I can think of in my mind, so they have to feel good. One of the, I mean, a lot of the front end activities that we see in education in schools and, you know, classrooms and books and syllabus and people are running around all over the place. People are making things on the board, these front end activities. But there's a lot of back end activity. And one of them you picked up was the element of empathy. There's a lot, there's a continuous hum behind all of us. You know, like a background noise, yeah. and uh, which has to do with what we feel, what we think, what we aspire for, what we are afraid of, what we want to try but we are afraid. And all this background noise is constantly there. And sometimes you feel a desire to, 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 to make it all very lyrical, to make it musical, whatever, to, 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 to make it pleasurable, not painful to deal with. And this back-end stuff does migrate in the front if you establish the kind of relationship with students on the class where your entire self is portrayed as a teacher, but also as a human being, as a yeah. person, as a carer. And so it's not anymore about, I am in a school and I'm here to learn. But it's just that we're together. Mm. We're together. We are in communion. Let's just enjoy this and have fun with it. So the bantering, the discussions, the jokes, which you can have as a private tutor across the table, that same can have its equivalent in a classroom also. And a teacher can do all of that. You can invite inquiry and discussions because 
she can answer those questions. If it has to do with math, it's not the authority that says, don't ask questions, do what I tell you. But it's the knowledge that tells the teacher, no, ask me questions and I'll answer them for you. And that starts an engagement which can be fun, lighthearted. And so it's no more school and schooling and blah, blah, blah. It's, wow. it's more yeah so just just as as a closing tip you know i'm and i'm hoping uh, a lot of students and young teens would might be listening to this if you're afraid of numbers what are the three things that you can do to uh, sort of bring ease in yourself if you're afraid of numbers there's not much you can do about fear because fear can be rational apprehension or it can be just fear, fear, fear for certain specific reasons. The fear of numbers has a long, you know, it, it starts very young. You start, you're a child and, you know, you're learning how to read and write and mo the mom comes in and explains everything she does. The moment it comes to math, the mom kind of pulls back and says, well, yeah, well, why, why don't you ask you? Your dad and, and so you go to the dad and say well you know i've got to do math and the dad pulls he's a bit worried got oh my god math now the kid is watching all this from the age of four five so six. true and, yeah. and then and so the dad says okay sure sure to, oh my god fractions okay wait a minute yeah okay maybe you could, why don't you ask your teacher i mean Look, just ask your teacher, go tell them after school. You go to the teacher, he goes to the school, he finds that everyone else is really scared. The teacher is really fierce and not explaining things. And if you ask any question, they think you're stupid. Now, who will not feel afraid of numbers after this? <laughs> so true. Could, that could be true of anything, really. You're absolutely yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So the fear has to be, uh, it has to be removed in layers and you would need outside intervention alone the kids will only feel more and more entrapped in this in this world and those kids need a way of coming out of it one the thing i did with charisma is that those same kids if they open a video on say whatever fractions or decimals or ratios and they start to listen to it i've turned something into a kind of a do it yourself, like, you know, like Ikea, put your furniture together. The different mm. parts, each part has been assembled and designed very, very carefully. So it's very easy to put those parts together and make meaning or conceptual meaning and understanding of math. So you can now do it yourself. And I think the best way for kids to do is do it in a safe environment where they feel they can learn on their own before they're exposed to. And that's the advantage of having technology do it for you. Why? How come this program has not been opened out or rolled out to our urban centers? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, my both my children have studied in Karachi, and the systems uh, are ruthless. <laughs> in short. So I, you know, I'm I'm just wondering that it, because it involves, as you're saying, uh, approaching the situation from a very, very uh, different route. It's training the teachers. It's training the students. So why not? Well, I'm not focusing on the urban centers. 
I mean, I could spend my time focusing on the urban centers. My interest is in the rural mind primarily because there's a certain purity about the rural mind that I'm getting drawn to more and more. Mm. There's a lot of, there's no unlearning to be done in the rural sure. mind. There's Thanks. only learning. And so there's a purity there, right there, and also a purity in the spirit and also in the intention. They really want to learn. They really want to understand the world around them. So mathematics is coming as a tiny, tiny piece, a tiny sort of light through a crack through which they sense, oh, my God, I can understand this. It brings them joy. And, and, and so it's not something that, I think one would experience in a rural setting because they've already found all kinds of streams of getting joy in their life. And they have all kinds of ways of fulfilling the, their dreams, whatever they want. Schools and everything feel that they have all the solutions. Uh, schools that are making lots of money feel that, well, they, they judge the success of any education on the basis of how many students and how much money they make. So if they've got that, mm -hmm. why would they want to change anything? So they don't. there's no need for them to even experience any kind of change because they're doing just fine. And to unlearn, most of the teachers in the rural, in the urban areas, I did work with them a lot in the beginning when I first started. And I was just amazed that most of them have very little understanding or knowledge of mathematics. Very little. Mm. But they're mm. fine with it. So they can use rote and learn approaches. And most of the kids go to tutors. The tutors are filling in a huge gap. for, And the tutors are doing a far better job. So those who do well... It's thanks to the tutors, 80 to 90% of all the well-to-do people go, the kids go to tutors. The credit goes to the schools. The schools, the elitist schools become clubs where whose, whose children get together. And one day when they grow up, they'll have connection making going on for jobs or whatever. But the real people who are serving the school's main interests are tutors. So the schools don't have to do anything inside the classroom. They can, you know, they can just treat, they can offer all kinds of nice perks and activities, but mainly connection making of people from the who is who kind of class. And so they're very successful. Who'd want to break that? There's a very nice connection between schooling and tutoring. And I think the school, school farm out their students to the tutors. <laughs> tutors quietly earn a lot of money and they're very grateful for that. And so it seems like it's a very nice collaborative connection-making venture and is working really well. Between the two of them, they're doing okay. Brilliant. I think, I think you've just nailed it. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it makes me... Um, it's, it's heartwarming to know that there are people like you and they're tapping into the rawness of the rules. And, uh, and finding potential and finding uh, uh, room for um, placing these dots, digits and decimals. Uh, wonderful. So thank you and best and best of luck with your projects. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Sonia. Pleasure talking to you.